If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. This morning we'll read the first 11 verses. Acts 18, 1 through 11. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garment and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his, all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in, a night, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come now to ask your blessing on us, to ask your blessing on your word, to the saving of sinners and to the sanctifying of the saints. Hide the preacher behind the cross of Christ, that we would hear the voice of our Savior. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. We have spent the last six sermons in our systematic exposition of Acts in the last part of Acts chapter 17. And we looked in great detail at the sermon which Paul preached at the Areopagus. Noting how he presented the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, to these pagans. There was some interest in Athens in hearing Paul. Remember, the Athenians always wanted to hear something new. So there was some interest, but that interest was only superficial for the most part. It didn't have any real substance. There were some who were converted but mostly there was a dismissal of Paul and a dismissal of the gospel which he preached. Remember, they scoffed at Paul and called him a babbler, a babbler. So as we come to chapter 18 and we read in verse 1, after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, there's a lot wrapped up in that sentence. There's a lot wrapped up there. 
And this simple enough statement, we need to we need to consider the context and we need to think about in a little more detail. Paul had a difficult time in Athens. Really, on this whole second missionary journey, he's had a difficult time. Not like the first missionary journey was a vacation. But he's had a very difficult time and most recently he's been in Athens. He's carrying the weight of all the things that have happened. He's carrying that on his shoulders as he arrives in Corinth. Remember the things that have happened. He went to Philippi and there he was beaten brutally and imprisoned. In Thessalonica, after a riot broke out, there was a city ordinance that was passed preventing Paul from returning to the city. And remember, Jason had to pay a hefty fine. So Paul couldn't return there himself. Then he went to Berea. Berea was the place, if you'll recall, that no upheaval came no opposition came from the Bereans, but the Jews of Thessalonica came to Berea to cause trouble. And there they persecuted Paul to try to prevent the gospel. And then he came to Athens, and the difficulties in Athens were different, but there were still difficulties. Paul had hopes that things would be different in Athens. They want to hear something new. And he had something they hadn't heard. They were philosophers and he had something to tell them. He hoped things would be different. The Jews would not be a problem there. But the problem of sinful men rejecting Christ is not just among the Jews. It's everywhere. And that problem, that problem of sinful men rejecting Christ did come to the forefront in Athens. Paul left Athens to go to Corinth. Paul arrived in Corinth in a low place. Not geographically, but emotionally weighed down. My grandpa used to say when he saw somebody that looked like they were emotionally weighed down, you look like you're on a low limb. Paul was on a low limb. <clears throat> Churchill described his bouts with depression as being chased by a black dog. And here the Apostle Paul is certainly experiencing this as he enters Corinth. Later we will see that this, this being chased by a black dog, this being on a low limb is serious. It's serious enough that toward the end of our text today, God supernaturally intervenes to encourage Paul. And we'll also see, in addition to this supernatural intervention, that God providentially brings things about to strengthen and to help Paul. Before we move into the text, let's consider some things about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth is a sinful 
place. Now there's some discussion among theologians as to whether Corinth was more sinful than other cities. But Corinth was a city so filled with drunken debauchery that the name of the city was turned into a verb to describe this type of egregious sin, to Corinthianize. And you may still hear that term used today, to Corinthianize. So the sin of Corinth may not have been worse, but the city of Corinth was the winner when it came to the name of the city being used to describe horrible sin. Now you know why I find it funny when I drive by a church named Corinth Baptist Church. We tend to think of the churches in the New Testament that they were, they were spotless. But we can only think that until we read the text of Scripture. And then we find out they were not. The point here is that Paul is not at a missionary's retreat in Corinth. This is no revival encampment. It's still a place that he will be encouraged because God can encourage and strengthen and help wherever we are. But this is a difficult place. He's still in a difficult place. It's just a different difficult place than Athens, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi. So the first thing we see here in this text is that Paul is on a low limb. Paul is in a low place. And secondly, we find Paul here, Paul finds encouragement from a Christian couple, from a married Christian couple. I mentioned that God would providentially bring some encouragement to Paul, some, some help to Paul. And encouragement came, we see here first, in the form of a husband and a wife who became friends and helpers of Paul and his ministry for many years to come. You've likely heard the name Priscilla and Aquila, and we'll hear the names Priscilla and Aquila in our study throughout Acts. Verse 2 reads, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Priscilla and Aquila. They had experienced a forced relocation at the hand of Claudius, and by God's providential hand, that is to say God's most holy, wise, and powerful work, they land in Corinth. What a coincidence. Now, the providence of God to bring them here, and Paul arrives shortly. They would later, Priscilla and Aquila would later go back to Rome and we'll see them as our study in Acts unfolds. They'll come in and out of the text. It is interesting to note that here we read about Aquila and then we're introduced to his wife Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. But most of the time when in the New Testament, when Aquila and Priscilla are named, 
Priscilla's name comes first. It's almost hard for me to say Aquila and Priscilla because it just comes out Priscilla and Aquila. And, and that's not why. That's not why her name comes first. I don't want to spend too much time here because we are certainly speculating when we ask why does her name come first? But do we think that it could be by accident? I mean, just just by accident? No. There's no accident here. Could it be because, because she lorded over her husband? She wore the pants in the family? No, that's not the case either. These are very godly people. And we don't think that he that, that Aquila was an overpowering, heavy-handed husband. No, this godly couple are an example of a married of, of a marriage and a married couple who are truly one in their marriage, and they are truly in Christ. Aquila, I believe. His name coming second and his wife's name coming first. I think this puts Aquila in the group that many of us are in. A group of men whose wife is a strong and intelligent woman. Maybe more intelligent or more winsome than him. We dare not read into this that Priscilla is not submissive or that, that Aquila is not the head of their home. They are such godly people in so many ways that we must assume that they are in their marriage relationship as well. And I bring this up to encourage some young husbands or maybe to encourage some older husbands who may think that a man can only lead his home if he's stepping on his wife. Some men act as though God has given them a wife to be like another one of their children. They can't bear to have a wife who has her own thoughts and her own opinions. The hint that we have in scripture about Priscilla and Aquila should be a lesson to us, an example to us as husbands and as wives. They served the Lord and they served the Lord side by side. You don't think of Aquila without thinking of Priscilla. You don't think of Priscilla without thinking of Aquila. They go together. May God bless our marriages that we don't think of one without the other. In the third place, we note here Paul's other job, his second job, his secular job. The pickup in verse three, we read this. He came to them, that is to Priscilla and Aquila, and verse three, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working. They were working together in this trade of being tent makers, living with them and working with them. So Paul finds friends in Priscilla and Aquila, and he finds a place to stay, and he finds employment. And they're making tents. Now this should not give us the idea that part-time pastors is the, the best thing. We should desire and we should labor to the end 
that preachers should be supported without needing other employment. That is clear from our confession and that is clear from scripture. But there are times, and this here in Acts 18 is one of those times, when it cannot be helped when the preacher needs to get a second job. Sometimes that's only for a short time. It looks like that's what it was for Paul. And sometimes it may be much longer. Now someone is thinking, is this a hint? Is the preacher hinting at something about our church? I would like to say that I thank God for the support that he has provided through Waco Family Baptist Church for me and for my family. And that support has grown over the years as the church has grown and as the giving to the church has grown. And I truly believe that God blesses each and every one of us when we faithfully support the financial needs of the church. My hope and my prayer has been and still is for Waco families, next pastor, to be able to be fully supported by the church, never having to have a second job. Paul here had to have a second job. Verse 4 tells us that while Paul was a tent maker, that's what he's doing for his job, he was still reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. It's not in my notes, but let me just mention to you. The King James says persuading Jews and Greeks, but the verb tense is very clear that he's trying. He's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul is doing what some call part-time ministry. Part-time pastoring. But hear me say this. There is no such thing as a part-time minister or part-time ministry for a minister who is seeking to serve God faithfully and to serve the church of Jesus Christ faithfully. Doing the work of ministry while working a secular gig is hard. And Paul was doing this hard work. Trying an attempt being made, putting his effort into persuading. And we'll see, at some level, there is fruit from this work of trying to persuade, but the work is difficult. Those who would enter church planting or really any church ministry should take note here very carefully Paul had to have a second job, but the ministry work did not stop. The work was hard, but the work didn't stop. The city was full of sin and debauchery, but the ministry did not stop. Pastor Brent and I have, have heard, I'll say, so-called pastors say, well, I'm going to have to quit ministry because I've got to get a job to support my family. I've got to quit ministry. I've even heard some say that the ministry or the people or the area that they're serving in is so difficult that ministry had to be halted. But Paul, 
Paul doesn't know quit. You've got to have a second job, but the work of the ministry must continue. It's difficult, but the work of the ministry must continue. The people are not accepting, but the work of the ministry of the word must continue. It's a hard place, but the gospel must be preached. Ministers of the word of God can't quit. We must preach the gospel in season and out of season. When it's easy and when it's hard. When it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. We do see in verse 5 that help arrives. Help arrives when Silas and Timothy come. They enable Paul, it seems, to return to full-time devotion to the ministry of the word. And as was his habit, he began by preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. So fourthly, we see once again, this time in Corinth, that Paul encounters resistance to the gospel from the Jews. Verse six, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garment and said, your blood be on your own hands, on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentile. The term here resisted, this is a military term that is translated here for us, resisted. And it means to align against. Think of taking up battle array and lining against. This is a combative resistance. When we think resist here, we shouldn't think that they said, no, thank you. It's much stronger than that. And we see this because we read they resisted and blasphemed. They resisted and blasphemed. This was more than just a rejection of Paul. It was even more than a polite rejection of Jesus Christ. This was to the level of blasphemy. And it was time to be done Casting pearls before swine. There are those who think we should abandon ministry quickly after one rejection. And that is not what is here. We should stay faithful. We should stay with the work of ministry. But what we learn here is there is a place, there is, there is a level to which resistance rises, where blasphemy comes in. And Paul had to say, enough. What we learn here is that God's glory is prioritized over and above even the salvation of men's souls. come as a shock to some of you. We, we never hear that. The greatest priority is the salvation of men's souls. Listen, Christians, prioritizing the salvation of men's souls is to the glory of God. And God's glory is the ultimate priority. And here, blasphemy comes. And we see that God's name, His word, 
His glory, God Himself, is most important. And Paul shakes out his garment. This is the same, this has the same meaning and carries the same, uh, the same picture as when we read about ministers shaking the dust off their feet. Paul doesn't leave us wondering, what does this mean, him shaking his garment out? He explains it fully and he uses terminology that we find in Exodus 36 and other places. Your blood be upon your own head. Now we have a saying, we, we say it like this, you have blood on your hands. What do we mean by that? We mean the responsibility lies on the one who has blood on their hands. The responsibility, the, the culpability for this thing. And Paul here says, your blood is on your own head. The principle is that if Paul had not preached the gospel to these Jews, had he not told them about Jesus Christ, their blood would be on his head. But he did. He did preach the gospel and they rejected. There's still blood. There's still judgment. But now that blood, that judgment, that responsibility is on their own head. Christians, we must remember this principle for our own lives. If the preacher doesn't preach, if the preacher doesn't preach the gospel, the blood is on his head. If the Christian doesn't tell his neighbor, let's make it more personal. If you don't tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ, and the salvation that we have in him, blood is on your head. If you don't instruct your children in the gospel, then blood is on your head. When you do what you are supposed to do, and they reject, it's still a very sad situation. But you did what you were to do. You did your part as it were. And before God you were right. Their blood is as Paul says here. On their own head. So he says he'll go to the Gentiles. And he leaves there and he goes next door. <laughs> he goes next door. Verse 7. He left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Fifthly, we see that Paul saw some encouraging success. Verse 8 tells us Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Many of the Corinthians. Now many doesn't mean most. Most were rejecting, but many believe. And many, many is good. It's always an encouragement to the preacher when souls are saved 
When Jesus Christ is saving and sanctifying under the ministry of the word, it is of great encouragement to the preacher. It should be of great encouragement to those who are believers, to the church. This is good encouragement for Paul while he was on a low limb. And now sixth and finally, Paul receives this supernatural encouragement from the Lord. Supernatural encouragement from the Lord. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months and was teaching the word of God among them. Do not be afraid any longer, verse 9 says. Do not be afraid any longer. Well, if the instruction is don't be afraid any longer, what do we know? Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid. Paul is afraid, and we don't hear the Lord here upbraiding Paul for his fear. How dare you? How dare you be fearful? Do you do that? I have a tendency when I see others in fear and I'm not. Why would you be that way? But that's not what the Lord does here. Paul is human and fear is a human reality. Everyone is fearful at some time of something. Especially after all that Paul has been through here, he is afraid. And that's normal. I would question anyone. I would question anyone who would say, I'm never afraid. And I would question anyone who had been through all that Paul had been through and didn't come here to this place in Corinth and have some level of fear. I've seen young boys, even some young boys in my own household, they want to be men. They want to be strong. They want to be brave. And many times, young boys get the idea that bravery means having no fear. No fear. Well, that's not bravery. That's not what bravery is. Paul here shows us bravery. Bravery is when you are afraid and you still do what has to be done. Paul has been afraid. And what has he been doing? Preaching and teaching to the Jews. And now he goes to the Gentiles, preaching and teaching, doing the work of the ministry, doing what must be done, and he's been afraid. Paul is a great example here of bravery. He's still doing the work of ministry while he is afraid. He is brave. But God gives Paul, we've seen some providential help and encouragement, now we find this supernatural help. He gives him a vision in the night. And tells him, don't be afraid any longer. Don't be afraid any longer. I wonder, because of the wording of what the Lord says here, I wonder if Paul was perhaps struggling with the thought of not continuing in ministry. The Lord says, don't be afraid and continue. Don't be afraid and continue. God says, continue, go on preaching the gospel, go on doing the work of the ministry. And we don't just see here, don't be afraid. 
fear not. But God gives reasons to abandon fear. God gives reasons to abandon fear. Reasons to have confidence as he continues the ministry. First we see, God says, don't fear for, or don't fear because I am with you. I am with you. What a comfort. And really, this is enough. Don't fear, I'm with you. And, and this is enough, God could have stopped right there and it would have been enough for Paul to have confidence to continue. Don't fear, Paul, I am with you. And the Lord has been with him and Paul could look back as we look back and see, Paul could look back and see the hand of God having been with him in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens. And in Corinth, God says, I'm with you. And that would be enough. You and I can go to scripture when we fear. And we can see the promises that God is with us. Find those situations, find those circumstances, Christians, when God says that he's with you. And then concentrate on doing those things. Focus on being where God has promised to be. And he's with you. Secondly, God says, don't fear because no man will attack you in order to harm you. So now Paul has a special promise from God for this moment, in this time. This is not something, Christians, that we can take and apply to ourselves. Well, you know, the Bible says no man will attack you in order to harm you. No, this was a promise for Paul and for Paul at this time in this place. Not for Paul for the rest of his life, but just here and now. No one will attack or be a threat to his life and his well-being. So Paul has this promise. Don't fear because I'm with you. Don't fear because no man will attack you or harm you. Then God says, don't fear for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. Let's take a little detour here as we see God saying, I have people. I have people. They are God's people. These people that he speaks of, I have many people in this city. Some are Jews, but surely the great majority were Corinthian Christians, Gentile believers. And God calls them his people. The point I'm making here is that if you ask the average American evangelical Christian, who are God's people? What will they say? Well, the nation of Israel. That's God's people. But God is pretty clear right here in this text. His people include the Gentile Christians in Corinth. God's people includes Gentiles. Church. You who are in Christ, don't let anyone tell you that because you are not a Jew, you are some lesser person or 
or some second class person in the kingdom of God. God has many people. And we are his people. We are part of the people of God. There's another lesson, the primary lesson here. Don't fear, Paul, don't fear, for I have many people in this city. There's a lesson here about the gathering of believers. There are many people here. Be encouraged. Be strengthened because I have people here. Be strengthened and encouraged through fellowship, through walking through life together, through being with and sharing with these people. And all of this encouragement is found in a body of believers here in Corinth. And brothers and sisters, you and I need to read this and we need to take the blessing that God has given us and take it to the greatest advantage that we can. Don't fear, for I have many people. Some of us would rather hang out with other people. Some of us would rather say, my friends, my closest relations, the people who I'm tightest with, they are not God's people. And then we're overcome sometimes with fear. We're overcome. And how do we stand? How do we stand in that? God says, don't fear. Don't be overcome. I have many people. I'm grieved when I hear Christians, some in our church, ask questions like, how often do I have to meet with the church? How often, how often do I have to be there? Like, what's the requirement? How many times is it necessary to, to I mean, you know, there's that whole Christian Sabbath thing. So Sunday, Sunday morning worship, that's, I mean, that's important. But is that all? How many times do we have to get together? How many times do we have to gather? How many times do we have to attend the teaching and the preaching? How many times do we have to be with the body of Christ? Is, is Wednesday night a requirement? Now you may think I'm making this up, but people ask that. Maybe you have had that question in your mind. Some of you haven't had that question in your mind, but you say by your actions, Wednesday night is not a requirement. What, what kind of questions are these? How often do we have to get together? Does, does that kind of question indicate a problem? Let, let me ask you this. Just imagine if one of you Married couples, any one of you, if, if I came to you and said, I'm struggling with something, how much time do I have to spend with Stacey? I mean, you know, what's the requirement? We're married, I know I have to spend time with her, but how much? I mean, what's the, what's the limit? Is it necessary that we're together every day? How much time away is okay? Or when do I have to say, well, that's too much? You'd say, hey, man, you are missing something somewhere. Something is wrong. Something's wrong in your marriage. Something's wrong in your heart. You don't understand the relationship that you're in 
If you don't want to spend time with your wife. Now how much time do I have to spend at church? How much time do I have to spend in the body of Christ? Now listen, I know there are things when we are prevented. There are some not here today because they were providentially hindered. But I hope and I believe that their heart and their minds are focused on, I want to be back with God's people. I want to be back there. May God continue to bless us, Waco family, with the many people that he has in this city. May he help us to better enjoy this blessing that we have from him. Very trying God of heaven, we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. God, we pray for the ministry of the word, the ministry of the gospel. We pray that by your power, by your spirit, that it would continue. We ask through the ministry of your word and your spirit that you would save our children, that you would save our loved ones. And we pray as your people that you would grow us up in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. That we might be the bride, the bride that you will present spotless. Through Christ, through his sanctified word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you have done and we pray for the continuance thereof. In Jesus' name.